Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. John Shattuck will join us in just a little bit. I am Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Thank you again, David, doing a great job as uh, my associate producer, our associate producer, your associate producer, running the boards today. Didn't ask you what your pin was, by the way. We've gone the whole day without... You, you, David always wears a political pin of your. What do you got? I do. Well, the last time we talked on air about my pin, we discussed Carter, and you mentioned Jimmy you Carter. a lot of friends that had Reagan country pins, so I wore my Reagan country pin. You wore a 1980 pin, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, from 1980 last time, and I mentioned I remember those days I saw more Reagan country pins in 1980, so you wore a Reagan. What does it say? Does it, the one I remember had a picture of him in a cowboy hat, but that doesn't have it. What does that one? What does that? Well, one? you know me. I'm always trying to give you a once around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This one is from 1984, and it says Minnesota is Reagan country. Minnesota is Reagan country. That was the one state that proved not to be Reagan country. That's true, and that's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated and picked this one up. Okay. Yeah, that, it was it was a landslide. He won 49 states in 1984, except Minnesota, because that was the state of uh, Walter Mondale, his opponent. By the way, it's not always a guarantee that you're going to win your own state. You know, Al Gore lost Tennessee in 2000. If he had won his home state of Tennessee in 2000, the, the, the election never would have gone to the Supreme Court. It would have given him enough electoral votes to put him over the top per adventure. Kind of interesting. You know what's kind of interesting, too, about what you're saying, Minnesota, Reagan country? You think about these upper Midwest countries, uh, upper Midwest countries, upper Midwest states. We were talking about the Southern strategy and this weird mythology around it that the left has used to prove that, you know, the Nixons and the Reagans played to the Southern racial fears in order to get a lock on the South. Have you heard of the phrase Reagan Democrat, David? Do you know that phrase, Reagan Democrat? Indeed I do. Reagan Democrat, it stands for a few things, but mostly it stands for a bunch of disaffected Democrats who joined the Republican Party uh, to vote for Ronald Reagan because he spoke to their concerns in a way the Democratic Party had left them behind. And do you know where that came from? You know, if the Southern strategy were such a thing that applied to the Republican Party— in the latter part of the 70s and in the early 80s, you would have thought Reagan country or excuse me, uh, Reagan Democrats would have emanated from the South, right? These kind of segregationist Democrats of the George Wallace type that kind of liked the quote unquote racism of the Republican Party, such as they imagine it exists in their hobgoblinization of our partisan history. Um the notion of Reagan Democrat came from the upper Midwest. Its center was actually in Michigan, Macomb County. I never know if I'm saying Macomb County right. Macomb County, Macomb County, M-A-C-O-M-B. But Macomb County, which is just a little bit north of Detroit. it came. That's where the Reagan Democrats came from. They came from the solid upper Midwest, not the South. They were already Republicans down there. I just think that's an interesting aside to what we were talking about in the last segment. Um. 
you know, we try here to, uh, do we have more on this or shall we move on? Up to you. And we'll move on. Well, if you have more, speak your piece. Oh, no. Just when you mentioned Reagan Democrats, my, the first name that came to my mind was Jean Kirkpatrick. Yeah, that's right. She, Ronald Reagan brought a lot of Democrats into the in, – and she – yes, and she was a, a Midwest girl uh, – brought a lot of Democrats into his administration. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick was very prominent. Uh, William Bennett went in as a Democrat, left as a Republican, changed his party affiliation over aid to the Contras. When the Democrats voted against aid to the Contras, he became a Republican. He switched his party affiliation. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, many of you hear these uh, radio ads, not radio ads, radio commentaries from Frank Gaffney. He went in as a Democrat um, uh, a lot. Yeah, I'm, uh, Elliot Abrams went in as a Democrat for Central American policy. Who else am I missing that was prominently a Democrat in the Reagan administration? Well, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. A lot of them had worked on the campaign you had mentioned earlier, the Scoop Jackson, the Henry Jackson campaign of 1976, Frank Gaffney among them. They were all, uh, and Gene Kirkpatrick was a friend of Henry Jackson's as well. Two out of those three were my boss. All right. Um, one of the things I did want to get to, and we'll do more of this over time, uh, you have a lot of heard me talking about issues having to do with youth mental health crises, I might even call it a pandemic, uh, having to do with school shutdowns and uh, drug abuse and that sort of thing. The thing I haven't spent enough time on, and I think it's going to be a growing issue that we're going to have to wrestle with, is the role of uh, social media and and use of smartphones and screen time in our youth. And we're starting to get some serious studies out on this. We're starting to get some serious articles on that on this. And we're getting to see, too, a growing debate between kind of right and left on this. I mentioned to you, I believe it was last week, that the Washington Post had a liberal columnist saying Josh Hawley is right about social media and our youth. Because Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, has been kind of taking the lead on trying to tamp down on underage use and actually any youth use of social media platforms. We're talking things, everything. Well, Facebook is less used by the youth now than it was. It's more used by older people. But everything from, uh, you know, TikTok to Snapchat, uh, Twitter to some extent, but probably the least amount of problems is with Twitter. But the whole range of these social media platforms that our youth are using. And there's a right-left debate that people are coming kind of to the right on, kind of to the conservative side slowly. Um, some of them uh, – the, the, let me give you the left-wing argument on this. The left-wing argument is that you can see a rise in declines of mental health of our youth at about the advent of the smartphone, at about the time the smartphones started becoming more – and more popular, more and more ubiquitous, and that our youth grew up in a time with the use of that smartphone where there was a climate crisis that tortured their souls, where there was a president named Donald J. Trump who tortured their souls, and all these kinds of kind of left-wing desiderata and right-wing boogeymen that were brought up to make kids really kind of nervous about the trajectory of their world and their country. That's that's kind of what the left is saying about this stuff. What the conservatives are saying 
is a different thing altogether, which is no, it's the phone itself. It's the social media itself. Because you can find these political arguments any which way you want. You can find, yes, while the social media companies do come from a left-wing dominated position and perspective, and we're learning that from a lot of the hearings that Congress held about two weeks ago. No, the, the actual argument, it's, it's, it's screen time generally and all the kinds of replacements of true human interaction with virtual interactions. We're not giving our youth, our adolescents, actual interhuman, interpersonal connection anymore. We're removing them and confining them to bedrooms and back seats of cars where all of their social life is now online rather than truly social. But there's another third thing that's kind of interesting that I learned today from Matthew Iglesias, which I did not know. A lot of us have heard lately the statistics about how the youth mental health problem has affected young girls the most. Guess what? Guess what? It's hurting left-wing children the most. Left-wing children the most. Take a look at a, subs, uh, at a website called Slow Boring and Matthew Inglesius' crunching of these numbers. It's really interesting. Liberal boys are experiencing even more depression than conservative girls. Isn't that interesting? There is, it's turning out, a political aspect to a lot of this stuff. None of it is good. And we can get into the reasons why this might be. I have a few theses myself having to do with grounding and values. But we're going to be spending some more time on the social media debates and youth depression. All right, let me take a quick break. As I go to break, you've heard me talk a lot about why refi. And if many of you or any of you still have questions about what it could mean to invest with them, they'd love you to contact them. Give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. Check them out online at investy refi.com. They're happy to put you in touch with any number of their happy and satisfied clients in the Phoenix area who have invested with them and been doing really well. They'd like me also to ask you how you feel your IRA is doing. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates not tied to the stock market or the Fed? You can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, Tax deferred. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. John Shattig, coming up next. Well, welcome back. It is a delight to have Congressman John Shattig in the studio. He joins us on most Wednesdays. He is former congressman representing the old Arizona 4th Congressional District from whence we broadcast and where we all live. We all meaning he and I. And uh, wanted to talk to you. Something I was hoping would have gotten received more headlines today. It was covered a little bit on cable television, John. And it was designed deliberately last night to be in prime time. And this was these this unique hearing. I think it was unique. The Select Committee on the CCP that Mike Gallagher, Congressman Mike Gallagher out of Wisconsin, put together um, and to kind of expose the dangers, um, the threats, uh, the competition, the combat with the Communist Chinese Party. And 
you were here a couple weeks ago and you did Yeoman's Workforce explaining to us different kinds of committees, and this one is called the Select Committee on the CCP. I don't remember anything quite like this where they designated a select committee to understanding or exposing the uh, depredations of one country. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it's about time is my my view on it. I don't know what your thoughts on it are. I absolutely agree, uh, and you are right. I don't know that I know of or can recall a select committee that goes or is focused on a country. Right. Typically, they're focused on issues. Uh, I was uh, on the select committee uh, of the U.S. House. I think it was on climate change yeah. or global warming, yeah. uh, and I served on that select committee. It then became a permanent committee. <laughs> Big surprise uh, there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but uh, I think it is most appropriate that we have this committee at this time, given the nature of our relationship with China. Recall that uh, there was a theory some years back that if we just treated China with respect and uh, de- engaged in trade with China, China would come to its senses and embrace a market economy, and that that was the best way to get China to embrace a market economy and to become a kind of reasonable nation. Uh, In point of fact, we tried that strategy and it flat failed. Uh, Instead of them adopting uh, our values, for example, the rule of law or integrity or uh, semblance of human rights, (laughs) semblance of human rights, rights, uh, what, what happened is they have been able to export and extend into our society um, many of of their beliefs and views, uh, and now we face uh, the woke ideology, uh, and they have not only not changed to be a more reasonable uh, or civilized nation in the community of nations, but they've gone uh, even uh, more aggressively toward being uh, more militaristic. Uh, Their uh, actions in their part of the world, taking over various uh, creating islands so that they can extend their sphere. You got to admit that's pretty ingenious. Go create an island uh, so that they can extend their sphere of influence. Uh, it, threatening Thailand, I mean, excuse me, th- threatening Taiwan constantly around the clock. Uh, I read just this morning that uh, their uh, threatening actions, including military exercises uh, on the water and in the air toward Taiwan have increased dramatically since uh, Speaker Pelosi made her visit. So uh, they have not reacted to our treatment of them with greater respect uh, in a way that is positive. Instead, they've reacted in a way that is clearly negative. That that was the concern early on in our engagement uh, with China. I remember, um, you remember Gary Bauer. Gary Bauer was saying his concern, and I think it was borne out to be true, is that if we're not careful in this engagement with China, it, they will change us more than we will change them. And I took particular note, H.R. McMaster, uh, in his testimony yesterday, he was, uh, at one, uh, he was a one, one-time national security advisor. He was talking about, uh, in fact, I have his testimony uh, in front of me, the party, the Con- Chinese Communist Party, coerces others to support or at least ignore its efforts to extinguish human freedom internally, as it did in the cases of the National Basketball Association, Nike, and many other countries, uh, many other companies. 
I, I, I was tracking this for a long time here, John, over the last two, three, four years, how interesting it was to me that, particularly at the NBA, how, how much they bowed to China's demands. Uh, I remember when Daryl Morey did nothing more than say, stand with the people of Hong Kong, and the NBA told him to delete that tweet uh, because it upset the uh, the power masters in China. Their tentacles reach far and wide into our culture here and, and to our universities as well. I mean, one of the eyebrow-raising stories from the documents uh, that were discovered, the classified documents that were discovered by Joe Biden, was how much money China had poured into the think tank at the University of Pennsylvania that was employing Joe Biden. Um, They have hundreds of thousands of students here, um, and they pour in hundreds of millions of dollars to our universities. They are changing us. And to the degree, I got to put one more thing on the table. This just blew me away. Perhaps I, I, I'm, I'm a little more conscientious of human rights than many in our movement. Perhaps not. I, I've always focused on it. And it dawned on me that that used to be the kind of the province of the left, or at least the province yes, in some definitely. respects of liberalism. When there, I was growing up, it was right, clearly. Right. Human rights was kind of a left-wing kind of thing or a liberal yep. kind of thing. There were, there were protesters yesterday, left-wing protesters in the committee room saying, leave China alone. This is amazing to me. That's just Maoism, plain and simple, isn't it? It's absolutely stunning that uh, we continue to ignore the outrageous things that they do, and we continue to ignore uh, kind of the the pattern of conduct that proves that these nations are, in fact, a threat. Uh, you see what China is doing. You see that American business has decided to sell out, maybe the NBA first, but certainly many, many other countries. And then you say to yourself, well, why is this? And, and uh, I don't know that people think about human rights in the context of uh, kind of day-to-day life. And yet I just read yesterday that uh, tens of thousands of pregnant women yeah. are fleeing Russia yeah. because they don't approve of the war, of Putin's war, and they don't want their children to be born in Russia and to grow up in Russia, so they are seeking to escape. Well, let's see. Is there a pattern there? Yeah. Yes. You can read about wealthy Chinese who uh, try to escape and do escape. Or it might not be called escape. They do leave China and go to Singapore. And then you think back, well, gosh, uh, not that long ago, uh, Germany was divided and people would risk their lives to climb over the wall uh, to get to West Berlin uh, or West Germany and uh, uh, live a life of freedom. And I don't know the other story I was reading where they point out that some of the people who have been the most critical of racism in the United States are now standing back and saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, it's it's bad in the United States. It's not as good as it should be. Yep. But, oh, by the way, it's worse in. Yeah. And then they name the country they're studying or visiting. Right yeah. Now. I was I was particularly interested to watch a lot of the people who were talking about systemic racism and taking a knee for the national anthem who were on the payroll of Nike. And I was thinking, um, boy, yes, it's one thing to be concerned about human slavery that ended 160 years ago here, but how about the money you're making off a country that's giving you human slavery in our in front of your very own two eyes? Human slavery right now. Right now. Let me take a quick break with John Shattuck. We'll come right back. Get your sense on um, the election in Chicago as well, if we can do that <laughs> when we come back. John Shattuck's my guest. We'll be right back. 
Delighted to have Congressman John Shattuck with us uh, doing uh, some of the news of the day and maybe in some respects uh, things that will have a lot more lasting durability over time. People are just maybe beginning to understand the threat that China constitutes. I hope they understand it. Uh, Clearly, the people of Chicago uh, understood the threat that they were suffering on from the mismanagement of that city, John. That was a big election last night where the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, came in third. She um, lost to the first place runoff winner, Paul Vallis, and then the Cook County Commissioner, Brandon Johnson, came in second. She came in third. That was a pretty resounding debate when the incumbent comes in third, so she won't go to the runoff. Uh, won't even be qualified for the runoff. Uh, she has been, and Charles Blow at the New York Times ha- wrote today in the New York Times that um, that that this is a, a reaction to the dislike of and the distrust they have for African American leaders. I think that's a really big lift to make that case. I got to tell you, when uh, when Lori Lightfoot said when Paul Vallis was taking about reclaim talking about taking back our city, his phrase in the campaign, she said that was a dog whistle to the whites. And I got to tell you, I, I, ju- I just think that's not only absurd, it's gutter politics on her part. When he was talking about taking back the city, and he has a good record in education reform, particularly in the inner cities of Chicago, um, when he was talking about that, if you're talking about crime, 80% of the homicides are black victims. So I think she has tried to racialize something, and I think the people of Chicago said, we just want safe streets. I, I absolutely agree. I think it was a huge election, and I think it really sends a an important message uh, about American politics and about what Americans want out of their government. What they want out of their government is kind of the fundamentals of a uh, civilized society, as Newt Gingrich used to say, and that means if their streets aren't safe— uh, if they can't go about their daily lives, they want that fixed and they expect government to fix it. And in this case, this was a referendum, I think, not uh, racially connected. This was a referendum on her inability to stop uh, rampant, out of control, uh, outrageous, violent crime, uh, which did manifest itself more on the black community. But still, it was unacceptable uh, and unacceptable to the people of Chicago. And nothing she did to try to excuse it or to say it was something other than what it was, I think, washes. I think the reality is uh, that. Uh, The American people, first and foremost, want safe streets. Uh, They want their kids to be able to go outside and play and not be in danger of being killed. Uh, And they don't want the worst schools in the nation. That's something like 20,000 pop per pupil, right? And and that's a message, I think, to all politicians that, you know, you may want to talk about some esoteric issue, uh, but you better be taking care of the home front and you better be making sure that the people can get out on their streets and go about their lives. Uh, I, I came back from uh, some of my trips overseas and tried to make the point where we were getting involved in other nations that uh, if those nations couldn't provide safety and security to their citizens, they were in pretty deep trouble. Yeah, that really is the first operational effect of government. Uh, someone uh, you and your family 
knew well, William Buckley, said in his mayor's race, and I have the quote in front of me, I have a couple quotes that I just always have in front of me, the protection of the individual against the criminal is the first and highest function of government. The failure of government to provide protection is nothing less than the failure of government. It's a failure of the mayor's office. It's a failure of municipal government, which is supposed to be the government closest to the people, right? And she was completely tone deaf. Totally. She, she refused to do anything meaningful to try to bring it to a stop. Yeah, except I think, you know, exploit along racial lines. And, and you know, there's this other thing. There were these weird videos and weird dancing videos that she was putting out. And put, she, she seemed to be, and I said earlier in my monologue, she seemed to be the kind of the modern embodiment of, 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 of playing Nero while Rome was burning, <laughs> playing Nero while Chicago was burning. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up. Let's focus on that point that you were making, which is a really interesting one about the few things that government is really constituted to do. And of course, there are different charges and different uh, precincts of power, whether it's the federal government, the state government, or municipal and local, and how when they expand beyond what they were supposed to do, nothing happens. Nothing good gets done. Let's come back on, on that and talk a little political philosophy with uh, with you when we do that. Sounds good. John Shattig is my guest. He is a former congressman, but he is also giving him his uh, due, a political philosopher as well. He joins us on Wednesdays. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Shattig is our guest. And um, having spoken a little bit about the goings-on in Chicago and the results of that um, election yesterday that put the incumbent mayor in third place of all places. Um, it's um, it's a point John made in the previous segment that I want to drill down on a little bit. There is this feeling, John, maybe you can put better words to it than I can, but I know you must hear about it from, from friends and just people you talk to, that we can't seem to do anything right anymore. Things just kind of, for lack of a better word, seem to keep on sucking. We can't take <laughs> balloons out of an air without shooting two sidewinders at them. We can't secure our borders. We can't seem to get things done. And it's been my thesis for some time. And and I guess I first learned this from a book. You used to walk around dog-eared copies of Conscience of a Conservative. Yep. Your daddy had a big big part in that book. Um Something I learned from from that book of Barry Goldwater's 1961, that when government expands beyond its constitutional authorities and duties and starts enwrapping itself and enmeshing itself in things it has no business doing, of course, the priority of rights, the priority of responsibilities fall. But then everything else does, too, because they're things government really shouldn't be involved in and can't be involved in. And I wonder if you might just sound off a little more on that. You probably could recite that book by memory, couldn't you? His well, chapter on education is as good today as it was in 1961, by the way. I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, do. Uh, 1990, I guess it was probably 1993, maybe 1992. Uh, I guess it must have been in 1993 or four. Um, I was watching John Kyle, and I could tell uh, in my own mind that he was not going to stay in the House. Uh, he was going to run for the Senate against Dennis DeCazzini, and it wasn't that uh, he didn't want to remain in the fight. It's that it was to be much more. You could be much more effective in the U.S. Senate. And I came to that realization long before he announced it. Uh, so at one point, I called my brother in Tucson and I said, so, David, uh, I think I'm going to run for the United States Congress uh, for John Kyle's seat because I think he's going to give it up. And we chatted for a little while. And he said, well, you know, 
I'm really sorry, John, but I can't support you. <laughs> and, uh, Sounds like my sisters. <laughs> trust me, uh, I didn't expect that, and I did not laugh. Okay. Um, what I did was say, after a long pause, what? Uh, and he said, nope, uh, I'm sorry, I can't support you. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I can't support you until you call me and tell me you have reread uh, Conscience of a Conservative. Uh, 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 that's so funny. the next day, and you know you can read it pretty quickly, I reread Conscience of a Conservative and called him back. And yeah. He was on board. Uh, but it's appropriate to be discussing this topic because I think the Biden administration, more than any administration in recent times, including the Obama administration, is engaged in what... Uh, I think, uh, is akin to, if not the same as, industrial policy. What we have now is an administration that believes that it is it is entitled uh, to have the federal government set every policy in all of society. Uh, it can decide uh, that uh, even though the market may want gas cowers, cars, or gasoline trucks. Or gas or, stoves. Exactly. <laughs> or the market may want hybrid electric or it may the market may want natural gas stoves because they are more precise in the temperature or name it on and on and on down the line uh, the market isn't what matters in America anymore it's the will of uh 535 members of congress and one president and so uh almost as a matter of fiat uh they create the issue of climate change and then they say we believe it's serious and we believe there is a solution and so no other force in society, including market forces, uh, is important. We will set the standard and we will tell you that uh, if you're going to have a car, it's going to have to be an all electric car. If you want electricity, it can't come from coal or anything else that we don't approve of. And oh, by the way, we don't approve of nuclear and we don't approve of natural gas. So uh, the only things left are wind and we choose to ignore the damages that wind power generation does or solar and the damage that that does. Uh, so uh, I think we are plunging toward uh, a society in which government makes all fundamental decisions, and the purpose of the Congress is to create incentives to get to the political result uh, they want. And that was bad when I arrived in Washington uh, in 1995, uh, but it has gotten exponentially worse. Uh, there's almost no thing you can look at in society where the government isn't putting its uh, finger on uh, what's going on. So it, instead of looking at market forces bringing home uh, so much of the production that we've shifted to China, China being, uh, I think, the biggest threat we face, uh, instead the government's going to put its hand on the scale. And and we're in an era when uh, the, the government, we used to say, well, the at least we said it clear through, I think, my tenure in Congress, the government should not be picking winners and losers. And the reality is the government's the only entity almost in America today that is picking winners and losers. And it's trying to create winners and losers. How do you, for example, last night, Christopher Ray was on television. Uh, how in God's name can you justify what he defended, which was, well, we don't go to the... Uh, social media entities and tell them not to cover this, but everyone knows that 
that what he does do is go there and tell them what he believes or what his agency believes. And then, of course, they respond to it. Of course, uh, any business in America told by the federal government what it thinks is going to try to conform lest it be audited or uh, legislated against you know, for and, not doing that. And, and licenses so, need to be renewed, too. You bet. You know? and, <laughs> FCC and so, licenses are often politicized, you know. T- tell me why, if the, if the FBI has the right to go to uh, Facebook or whoever and, and provide them with insider information right. saying, well, we think this laptop came from Russia or we think uh, this scam was created in Russia – don't they have a duty to tell you that? That's that's the thing. And don't they have a duty right. to tell me that? Right. Are, are they entitled to pick who they tell? Can they decide, well, uh, we're going to tell uh, Facebook or we're going to tell Twitter, but we're not going to tell some other social society or some other business. We're not going to tell General Motors. We're not going to tell Seth Liebson or John Shattuck. It's outrageous. That's the first outrage. I am equally outraged at the membership of the mainstream or the mass media that went along with this because it was our understanding from the beginning that the press was to serve us, not them. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. That was the whole point that they wrapped themselves up in the First Amendment over any time someone deigns to sue them either for defamation or violations of some kind of exposure of a classified piece of intelligence. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever able to censure the government. And they went along with this stuff, John. And the press was supposed to be the independent Yes, yes that's right. They were the referee. That's right. right. They would tell you, well, uh, the government says this. We'll tell all of the people that. And then, oh, by the way, we'll tell you what we discovered when they told us that. Let me ask you, let me ask you when we come back. It's our last short segment. Let me ask you the, the real question that I think is on everyone's mind and it's eternal. Can we get it back? Can we get this government to work again? Can we get yes. it to operate within the four corners and how? You'll tell us when we come right back. John Shattig and I will be right back. Want to thank John Shattuck for coming in studio as he does most Wednesdays. Uh, John, we were just talking about the Leviathan uh, that has become our federal government, but you know what? There are bureaucracies throughout, um, honeycomb throughout all, all, all stages of government. But at the federal government label level, uh, can we get it back? Is it has it grown? Has it spiraled so far beyond um, beyond our able to, uh, our ability to control it and rein it back in, or is it able to? be back in operation within the four corners of the U.S. Constitution. Well, first, let me say uh, how much I enjoyed the discussion of philosophy and how 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 great a service I think it is that your show provides so that those who want to think about these issues from a philosophical standpoint, not just from uh, kind of the the momentary uh, satiating (laughs) of some desire, uh, (laughs) I, I think having people more grounded in the conservative philosophy is a very, very good thing. So it's fun to come here and do. Second, I'm going to admit that my answer to this question uh, falls in the category of do what I say, not what I do. Uh, Every morning I get up and I read the news and it just drags me straight to the bottom of the tank. It just depresses me. And I go, oh, my gosh. And I look at what the Biden administration is doing and the crushing of freedom and then the acceptance of the crushing of freedom and I get completely depressed. Having said that, if I, as to the ultimate question is, have we gone too far? 
Well, we've gone very, very far, and and I think we are teetering at the edge of where it may not be able to be saved, except that when I stop and think it through, it is impossible not to find clear evidence that uh, inside man somewhere, and by that, of course, I mean inside man and women, in, inside all of human society, there is a... Uh, uh, a in, an intense yearning for freedom and without sometimes without teaching without inspiration without uh, leadership it just bubbles over here there and everywhere and we've already discussed this in in our conversation today, conversation today. Uh, russian people looking at what putin is doing and saying uh, i want a government that gives me some chance to participate in what it does and some voice and some degree of, to be clear, freedom, which is why I am, my passion is freedom. And, and, and so you see Russian women who are interestingly pregnant and they're about to give birth to a child and that child is either going to be a Russian or something else and they sneak out of the country. I think going, of the Elian Gonzalez story too. Yep. Same idea. Gonzalez, oh boy, that upset me when me, I was there. Me too. And, boy, and then watching the, you know, those Chinese that have the means yep. get out, uh, at looking at the struggle over uh, Hong Kong. Yep. Uh, the innate urge in the human spirit for freedom, I think, is ultimately irrepressible. Amen, brother. Thank you, sir. Folks, thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. He's John Shadda. God bless you all, and class dismissed.